You are listening to the I Am In podcast produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. We've asked members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to share how their lives have been blessed by living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Savior's request, come follow me, they have all responded, I am in. When sitting next to Sam Swenson at a striking six foot two and 250 pounds, he will claim to be a perspective before model. With a sense of humor that can make anyone smile, every minute in any conversation with Sam will bring you joy. He'll tell you he has a lot of failures to speak of, which makes for some great stories, and he'll share them often. I am Michelle Burke, a teacher at the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion, and you are listening to the I Am In podcast. Sam Swenson currently owns and operates podcast production companies. From a studio in his home garage, he produces several podcast shows weekly. Sam has navigated a circuitous road through the industries of marketing and entrepreneurship. He has owned and operated many marketing agencies web development firms, and has a long track record as a hired gun helping businesses as a brand development specialist. He is energized by tight deadlines. When I know people are depending on me, he said, that's when I shine. Then he laughs and says, I also have a strong testimony of the power of forgiveness. Sam and his amazing wife are the parents of three beautiful children, which he will openly declare as his biggest success story in life. I, uh, I, I wrote that, that bio a little bit different. Uh, the quote was, when I know people are counting on me, I, I, that's when I shine. And it's their opportunity to uh, learn forgiveness because I never hit a deadline on time, ever. Never hit a deadline. So... Um, I'm, I'm really humbled to be here. Ha, raise your hand just really quick, quietly, because the Zoom thing. Don't, don't loudly raise. But have you, have you been to any of these Friday forms? Raise your hand if you've been to one or you heard it or anything like that. Have you seen the list? Or do you know the people that are showing up here to do this? You got like doctors, presidents of companies. I think there's a wizard or two on there. And then there's me. So I don't really know why... I'm here. <laughs> um, no, I'm very humbled, though, um, to be. There's there's a couple paid church officials, I believe, that are on the list as well. You know, those high those high paid individuals. Um, let me explain a little bit, though. I, a little while ago, I was uh, I received an email from the institute, and they said, "Hey, can we stop by your house sometime and chat?" I'm 45, so I'm like, do I have like an overdue institute book from like 1997, or is Craig Spute still trying to recruit for the the choir? I I I didn't I didn't really, and and then it dawned on me that I've been doing a lot of the uh, the merch or the, you know the the swag you guys might like the shirts or hats or the signage like out front that kind of stuff. I've been doing that for, for a little while, um, and uh, I knew what this was. I, I'm, like I said, not good with deadlines, and I don't think I hit one deadline on time for, deliver, 
delivering stuff to the institute. So I this I knew it. They were they were sending institute like leg breakers to my house to to try to to try to get their stuff. Um, but actually, um, they mentioned that it was about podcasting, and they said, "Could we come by and see your studio and talk about how to uh, how how to." make one, how to make a podcast. And I was like, well, my studio's like the size of Carthage jail. It's like a six by nine box and it's filled with sadness. And, but it has the cool colored lights like all the TikTok kids have, you know? So I'm cool. Um, and I, I recognized one of the names on the list. I don't know if you've ever worked with Audrey Esmiel here. Uh, she's awesome. And she knows my track record <laughs> with deadlines and deliverables. So I knew, I knew she was coming, so I knew I, I had to prepare an apology. And, but also, Sister Burke was, Sister Burke, Michelle Burke, Sister? sister? The Burke. <laughs> uh, she, she was coming too, so this was somebody new that I could let down. And, uh, and so I was looking forward to, to disappointing her. Um, when we got together, uh, Sister Burke explained to me, she says, so we're going to do a podcast uh, called I Am In. We've got this cool logo. I don't know if you've seen it, like the Idaho logo with the I Am In. And she's like, it's really neat. It's like in the words, Boise, Nampa, right? And I was like, that's cool. I, I designed that logo. <laughs> and she, I believe I got a hug and she said, this is meant to be. Um, and, and so uh, it, she, she explained the people that were going to be here and kind of the format um, they asked questions about podcasting. I Googled most of the answers and we left on a really good note. I was really excited about this. And then, and then, uh, they, they asked me to, to be one of the speakers. And <clears throat> I realized that there are, there are flaws in the church at that point. Um, but, uh, but I'm very happy to be here. So let's see if I can murder the next 45 minutes in front of you. Uh, to start off, uh, I'll rewind just a bit. Um, I, was, I was really born of goodly parents. Um, I have five siblings, of which I'm the most, uh, <clears throat> the most successful. <clears throat> sure, my brother, Matt Swenson, I don't know if you know him. He's the one yeah, back there. You know him? Yeah. He's my wild. Yes, he's, he's the choir man. He's the main choir man. Um, you know, he's a pillar of the church community, and, you know, he's in the audience. But I'm the one behind the mic today, so the following will be a history as it applies to me. Um, I'm the favorite kid, and that helped me gain an advantage, I think, in life. And f so from a young age, I knew I wanted to kind of do things differently. Um, I don't know if you experienced this, but junior high, high school, they make you take like language classes, you know, and all that. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So I didn't take language classes because I'm, I'm just going to go to the, you know, a school that doesn't require languages. And I had my, you know, plan all, all mapped out for myself. So <clears throat> that desired uh, guided the course, I would say, that, ended, I, that I ended up taking in life. Um, so upon graduating, I had my sights set on going to Juilliard. Does anybody here know what Juilliard is? Yeah, so it's a, art, it's a performing arts 
college juggernaut in New York, um, really prestigious. And uh, I said, I'm going to go to Juilliard. And uh, so, you know, my whole high school was kind of geared toward this. I was in choir and I did all these things. And my parents were like, that's cool. We can't afford that at all. But if you want to try to make it happen, go for it. And <clears throat> so I did. I, uh, work, I set to work, uh, produced my own application, recorded my audition VHS tape. Do you guys know what VHS tapes are? Yeah, yeah. I was going in for vocal performance, <clears throat> or singing as it's known by the common man. Um, I worked really hard. I put together the best presentation that I could, and uh, I tugged on some heartstrings with my application. I was the boy from Potato Town, wanting to make it big and... Big Apple on the big stage, and I submitted it, and I waited, and 37 days later, I got a letter, and I opened it, and wouldn't you know it, I got accepted. Yeah, blew my mind. Um, accompanying the letter was an explanation of like fees and dues and tuition costs and whatnot, and I read it over and over looking for the part where it talked about uh, scholarships. I couldn't find anything on scholarships. Um, I did my research and I came up with absolutely nothing. There was no scholarships at the time to be had by a kid from Potato Town. Um, and I didn't have $25,000 a semester to make this thing happen. Uh, TikTok hadn't been invented yet, so I couldn't like do one minute dance videos, you know, and kind of make some money. Um, you know, I wasn't, there was no way to go viral at the time. So I, I did, what I did next was something new for me. It stretched my boundaries and my comfort zone, and it changed me in a way. Um, I failed to reach my goal. I, this thing, this thing, you know, they, they made TV shows about Juilliard. There was a TV show that ran for a long time called Fame in the 1900s. <clears throat> um, you know, I had all the talent that this thing required. I had all the energy to do it. I had youthful vigor and youthful ignorance, you know, everything you needed to make something like that happen, but I didn't have the money. And there was no way that I was going to drum up that kind of cash. So I did something that else that was really foreign to me for the first time. I didn't go. I didn't go. I, I could not make my dream happen. But I won't say that I failed totally. Um, I like to say that I retreated. Uh, none of us ever completely fail. Um, failure is actually not something many of us humans experience too often. Heck, even in high school, in school, college, you could fail a course and there's probably five ways that you could circle back and pass that course. You know, whether it's immediately or down the road or whatever. We rarely fail because failure has a very final outcome and death is about the only final outcome we have. Most of the time, think about anything you've dealt with. Think in the last couple of weeks, that thing that was like, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. And yet, here you are today, having got through that. And then you rewind a little bit and you think about the thing before that, where you're like, I don't know how I'm gonna 
get through this. I'm going to fail. And yet here you are. And if you think about it, if you, have a, if you could check off things in your mind of things that you, where you've gloriously failed, the, the list is probably pretty small because we kind of pivot, right? We get through things. <clears throat> um, I'd li- I like to say instead uh, that um, I retreated. So if you think of the traditional ways that the word retreat is used, it's typically some pretty crazy situations like war. Um, But if you think about it, retreating actually takes a lot of intestinal fortitude. It takes humility. In order to retreat, you need to come to a kind of a full awareness that your current trajectory is not going to work. And then you have to make a decision right then. Because if you keep going in that directory, that trajectory, in war, you die, <laughs> right? So retreat is a thing. It's, it's something that takes forethought. It takes foresight, too. Foresight in that you need to be able to um, know that, that there is something else, that if you, if you were to back away from your current trajectory right now, that you could regain strength, you could, you could refortify, and maybe even make it so that you, you have the ability to maybe do that ta- attack again, re- try again. War is a great example for this because it, it's happened. You know, uh, rarely does an army meet an army and then one retreats, and then after they retreated and they go back, they all die. It doesn't happen that way. You only, you only die if you stay in the battle that you shouldn't be fighting because you're outmatched, right? So if you retreat, it gives you an opportunity. Think about what happens in that situation. In that situation, you retreat, you fortify. You, you, you had your first encounter with the enemy, and you get smarter. You know what you're up against. You gain context, right? So retreating is kind of a learning experience of sorts. Um, just like my experience with Juilliard, I could have ignored reality and bought a bus ticket for 75 bucks and made my way to New York just to become a homeless person or a bank robber, you know, try to make this thing happen one way or the other. But most likely, I would have not changed my trajectory. I would have just extended the amount of time that I was allowing myself to just kind of get beaten by this thing, because I wasn't prepared for it, right? I was young and vigorous and all these things, but I lacked an essential component to make this thing happen. Um, But what you do with your time when you retreat is just as important as making that decision, is this trajectory not good for me right now? And I want... I want to say at your age, there's a lot of trajectories you're going to go down and you're going to, you're not smart enough to do them. But I I could say that about every, I'm 45 and I'm not smart enough to do a lot of the trajectories that I put myself on. And it's a learning thing, right? It's something that, that, that comes over time. But I would say it comes faster to us if when we set out on a course, if rather than just keep bumping into walls and call that learning, is we see where that course is going and be aware enough to step back 
and see if maybe there's other options available to us rather than just keep going headstrong until you know we we really are homeless and just have to go home i gotta find another 75 bucks to get home from new york which didn't happen i didn't i didn't do that so i tried to write my course and after a short two-year stint as a missionary serving a foreign mission in Alabama. Uh, I gave it another crack. That mission taught me some things though, it, you know, and, and missions are profound for a lot of people. I had some unique experiences on my mission. Um, one, I had, I had a rare grouping of companions that I had on my mission. I had one who uh, the first couple days went really all right. And then he just stopped talking to me. And a week went by and he would just do the bare minimum to communicate with me. And then after a week, I was like, okay, I gotta know, like, am I not showering enough? What, you know, am I making food you don't like? What is it? And he's, he said, I just don't think you and I would hang out in high school. And I was like, that's an odd flex, but all right. And it was a struggle. I was with a kid who was early in his mission and felt like this was, you know, a time to bond with other missionaries. And he, he had established some priorities. I would say maybe that he was heading in a trajectory that he was going to want to retreat from at some point, because if he didn't soon, he'd go through several missionary companions and he would, he would be less, he, he would be worn out. I had another companion who, um, this is, it was really interesting. He received a letter from his dad and the letter had a debit card in it. And uh, just a letter like you get from your parents. You know, I love you, proud of what you're doing, everything like that. And then um, that night, we got a phone call from the mission president and his wife. And in my mission, you went to the mission president's house for one of two reasons for dinner. One was you're doing really well, and one you were doing really bad. <laughs> and, and honestly, I don't think we were doing either of those things. We were, you know, we were pl plugging away in our little tiny town in Alabama. And uh, so it was a mystery. We drove the whole way. And the whole time, you know, we're talking, he, he's you know, pulls out his debit card a couple times and says that's kind of an odd thing for his dad to do. And we got to the mission president's home and they separated us. And I was sitting with the mission president's wife and my companion went with my mission, my, my, my companion went with the president. And about at the same time, they let us both know that his dad had killed himself and that this was all preparatory, what he had done with his son. Sorry, it was a, it was a shock. And um, it was a shock to him too, it wasn't just a shock to me. Um, but to, to speak of agency for a second, they gave him the option, what do you want to do, missionary? And he said, I want to keep serving. Uh, I don't want to go home. Uh, and they're like, you don't want to go home to the funeral, or we can make it temporary, you go and come back. And he's like, 
I'm here to serve. So we went back out and we started working. And I won't say it was easy. That, that kind of thing comes up <laughs> when you're trying to share discussions about spiritual matters. It, it came up a couple times and it was awkward. Difficult navigating that with like a prospective <laughs> member of the church, you know, trying to learn the gospel basics. But I had another missionary who faked an illness for two months. And uh, we went to many doctor's appointments at the hospital, and they ran cameras through every place they could find a camera. And I kind of felt like uh, this wasn't real, maybe. Like he had an ulterior motive. I caught him a couple times, like in a closet, making collect phone calls. And I thought maybe he was talking to his mom. But I got him in his second area and where he was a greenie. And Alabama's unique in that you have dinner appointments with, mich- with, uh, with members. You also have what's called marry my daughter dinner appointments, um, where they strategically position you next to a daughter. And it's weird because you're having spaghetti and everybody looks nice, but the daughter's wearing a prom dress. And you're like, this is... And that had kind of happened in his first area. And he was wooed by this family and they were paying this collect phone call bill and um so i went to my president i said i don't i don't know if this is legit and uh you know i kind of did that missionary thing like this is affecting the work and you know i need to come on knock some doors and all my mission president said to me was support your companion and so for months we sat in the apartment and for months i kind of did this like scripture study challenge with myself, like, how many times can I read the Bible? <laughs> how many? Four, to be exact. Um, it, was, it was difficult. But, but I learned through that that there are moments in our lives where we head in a trajectory and we run into a brick wall, and then at that point we have the option of staying there and just pushing against a brick wall for as long as we want. Or retreat. Retreat and re, rethink. And sometimes those things are self-imposed. And sometimes those things are imposed upon us. And we always have that opportunity, though. And so I started to think of the word retreat more like a place of solace than a, than a failure, than a, than a thing to be ashamed of. Um, came back from my mission. And I decided... Okay, Juilliard's not a thing because I'm not going to rob a bank. And um, so I decided I'm going to go to the Art Institute in Denver, in Colorado. And my parents were like, okay, cool. That's a little cheaper. We can help pay for part of it. And I was like, all right. So my mom and I road tripped to Denver. We rented a studio apartment that was not even half of this room, I would say. I don't know if you know what a studio apartment is, but it, they're designed so when you go through the front door, if you fall forward, your forehead hits the other wall, and that's it. So you get, and you spend a lot of money, because I was downtown Denver, and I didn't really know where I was exactly downtown Denver. But for two days, I went and got acclimated to the classes, which were walkable for me. And my mom set up my whole apartment. That place was gleaming. I mean. I was surrounded by some really interesting individuals, but my place was like, you know, was very peaceful. Um, After two days, she left. Uh, And on the third day in Denver, 
<clears throat> I got jumped by a gang and beat up for all my stuff. Um, so long story short, I'm walking down downtown on a sidewalk and I don't know why I had, I had like bleached hair. It was the, it was the late 1900s. If you got to forgive me. So, you know, bleached hair, I had black glasses like this. And so for some reason, I decided to load up a bunch of electronics and stuff from my apartment, put it in a backpack and just start wandering around an urban environment, which is, the closest we have to this would be like the mean streets of Garden City. Like that's as close as you could get here, but it's meaner than that, right? I know that's pretty mean. Um, so I'm walking, I'm trying to find my grocery store, my laundromat and all that. And I walk across the street, it's getting dark. I decided to head back, so I cross the street. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a group of individuals cross the street as well. And I start heading back up the sidewalk. And before you know it, there's two, two fine young men standing on the sides of me as I'm walking. And, and they said, hey, you got any weed? <laughs> and I was like, no, I do not. <laughs> and then they said, do you have a gun? And I was like, no, I do not have one of those either. And then I proceeded to get beat up. Um, I don't know what the, an the good answer for that is to not get beat up, but I said no. Um, I didn't want to lie, but then I lied to get out of the situation. I, I stood up from the first round of, of trouncing that I was experiencing, and I said, you, you hit the wrong guy. You hit, you hit the wrong guy. You, you can, you're not going to want to finish this. And they're really excited, and they're you know, ready to hit me again and beat me up. And, and they said, what are you talking about? I said, have you ever heard, heard the witness relocation program? <laughs> and they were like, what? What is that? And, and I'm barely holding these guys on to listen to me. And I said, does this look like my real hair color? Do these look like real glasses? I said, I, I lived in Washington, D.C. And my whole family was murdered. And I've been relocated to Denver. Look behind me. Do you see a dark car parked back there on the road? And I was just praying that there was a dark car on the road back there. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, there are FBI, there are federal agents in that car. So you guys can do this, but you're going to lose. And they apologized. <laughs> and just when they apologized, the cleanup crew came, like the rest of the gang, you know, just in case these, I'm, I'm a ninja and I beat these two guys up. The rest of them came. I had to re-explain the whole story. And then I got to walk home. And I retreated, so retreated in that moment. But, um, so retreat kind of became the plan of the day, you know. Uh, this time it was different. I retreated into the calm counsel of my parents. Uh, this was a, I, this was more of an eye-opener than I ever wanted. I'm alone. I'm in a box living, in, you know, with a, I've got a mattress and a, uh, like a hot plate to cook food on. I know nobody at my college. I know no, I know nothing. And every time I step outside, I think something bad's going to happen because while I was there, a couple miles away, Columbine happened while I was there. And then a week later, they called me and said, hey, could you please stay in your apartment? We're um, trying to locate an individual who had committed a serious crime out on the sidewalk and he was hiding in my apartment 
complex now. And I was like, no problem. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll just I'll stay right here and say some prayers and <laughs> hope to get through this. Um, but I, I retreated into a whole new gear. I started to contact my parents on pretty much a regular, a regular basis, daily basis, to talk to my dad. I needed, I needed somebody with some stability. I needed somebody to listen to what, what was probably a pretty boring story every single day of what's happening at an art institute. I really started to listen in class because suddenly life became really serious. And I was like, this has a, I, I need to get something out of this. If I'm putting this kind of effort into this and risk, I need to get something out of this. I spent a lot of time alone and I spent a lot of time on my knees trying to maintain peace to find out kind of what was next for me. And I don't know how many of you have heard this before. Um, Matt, tell me who said this, but the adversary has the ability to mimic every emotion that Heavenly Father can mimic with the exception of one. And it's because it's the only emotion he doesn't possess. And that's peace. So every emotion you're feeling, you, agency, right? Um, Alabama's a great example. There's, there's churches where people get very excited and they roll around on the ground and that, that's the spirit. And I, I, I don't question it. I've been there. I've seen it. And it's a, it's a, it's a thing. There's an event happening there. But there's one thing that the adversary can't mimic, and that's peace, because he doesn't possess peace. And so that became kind of my true north. I looked for peace as I, went, as I navigated things. And I kept bumping up against a problem when I was there. I'd talk to my dad. I'd go to school. I'd do whatever I could. I'd come home. I'd study. I kind of got into that, what did I do during two months when I was sitting with this missionary that didn't want to, you know, serve? And I, I got into kind of a spiritual routine, but I kept running up against something. And that was, I, I didn't know what was next. I felt like maybe I shouldn't be here. I felt like there was a lot against me going here. Things at home were kind of getting weird. So I kept praying and hoping I would find direction. And then it dawned on me that oftentimes action precedes direction. Just because I'm standing in one spot and pivoting and looking at different things doesn't mean I'm acting. I'm just looking at different things, looking at different options. Which ways can I go? But I haven't started going any one direction yet. So I thought, okay, I need to start taking action. Uh, interesting things started to happen. I started, I was a cyclist, so that's a road bike, you know. It's the bike shorts, and the pad and the shorts, and... No one should wear those. Um, I started cycling with the dean of the college. Uh, it was a really weird connection, but he lived near, and we started cycling together in the morning. And in our conversations, he told me to leave the school. This is the dean of the college. That's like going to buy a car and them telling you, I wouldn't buy a car. <laughs> no one does this. But the dean was telling me to leave the school, partially because he was like, hey, what you, the abilities you have could be better nurtured at a school that had more of an accreditation. So he was trying to shepherd me 
in a good direction. And this was very unique. And I felt very blessed to have somebody that was helping me to not waste a bunch of tuition and a bunch of time, but he was giving me resources, like really weird. It was like a prison warden trying to tell you how to break out of jail. It was, it was interesting. <clears throat> so I let that dream go before completing my degree. This isn't a tutorial on what you should do at college, <laughs> okay? Um, but I was learning from the time I spent in retreat, the time I spent with people that were smarter than me, um, the time that I was spent listening to the Lord, all of these emotions and excitement and ups and downs of being a youth at the time, having youthful vigor and, and the world is my oyster. Understanding that through all of that and all those emotions that I felt and all the, the cloud of what can I do? What should I do? Where can my talents take me? That if I just stuck with peace, if I sought that out, that is a muscle that if I continued to work that muscle, I could get further than sampling a bunch of different directions and running into walls and wasting time. Um, when we fail in life, whether it's temporarily or spiritually, remember it's always best to fail fast. It doesn't mean not to learn, um, or it doesn't mean to not be accountable for our actions either, but be meek. When you fail, be teachable. Be ready to listen. Be ready to learn. Be ready to, set, to take a step back and say, okay, this isn't working like I wanted, and, and allow someone, whether it's a spiritual advice or someone that, you know, uh, that, that is brought to you by the Spirit to help you guide and direct your life, listen. And if you feel peace when those, guidance, those points of guidance are given to you, you can bank on that being something that, if nothing else, you should consider, you know, a little more than just what's the next idea you could Google. Um, in those quiet moments, there is always a voice. And the meek learn to respond to that voice. Um, and it took me a while. Still taking me a while. Haven't figured it all out. I don't know why I'm here still. I, I mean, you guys have doctors and presidents and all those people here. I'm just doing my best. Um, so we'll fast forward just a little bit. I had made it out of the late 1900s into the year 2000s. I got married. I had five marketing agencies. Um, I had a web development firm that was acquired by a big agency and I got a bunch of cool stories. You know, I was a keynote speaker at a bunch of social media conferences and um, I adopted my son. Uh, I was part of a business where all six of us business owners, that's, that's too many by the way, you should never have six business owners. We all owned Ford Mustangs, brand new Ford Mustangs as our daily drivers because we thought that was a good business expense. But it's not. It's not, it's not a good business expense. Um, no. Also, um, paying credit card debt with a, with a small business loan isn't a good business expense. Also, you should know who is spending your money in your company, and are they paying their own personal debts off, and you're just trying to be a designer in the corner. All things you should learn before you uh, 
before you while while navigating business ownership, if that's a, a direction you're thinking of going. Um, I was developing a lot of skills though through that um, process that um, I would be able to use on my next venture. Humility was growing too because I was failing over and over. Five business, five businesses, but I don't have five businesses right now. I put a bullet in each one of their, those heads. You know, those are those are bodies strewn <laughs> in my past, which. Um, in a lot of cases, because we pushed too far and we weren't teachable, we didn't we didn't know how to navigate uh, the next steps for the businesses, and that happens. It, you know, failure is part of of an entrepreneurial gig. Um, but I was trying to reduce the distance between failing, falling flat on my face, and picking myself up for the next next thing. Oh, okay, so I am almost out of time. So quickly, what I, what I did was I, I went against my ju better judgment. I'm not a good employee. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't like to sit in a box and like just do this, you know, over and over. I need, I need room to roam. And uh, a speaker that was actually here, uh, I believe in February, Orville and Heidi, Thompson, they own Sensi. Have you heard of Sensi? You know, you had like this. Have you heard of Sensi? So I became an executive there, and they were there. That was great, great fertile ground for me for a little while. <clears throat> and then I decided I had left my business behind to come and work for them. And I left clientele behind. I left all these things behind. And then everything kind of took a turn in the space of one year. I got a divorce from my marriage of 13 years. Um, I had a six-year-old son. I quit my job at Sensi. Um, and uh, life was on reset. And one of the things that I remember the most from that time was I needed guidance. There were so many things that I was changing. I had I literally flipped my world upside down. I couldn't just go and pick up. I couldn't say, sorry, I didn't mean to stop that business that I quit to go to Sensi. Sorry, all clients come back. No clients came back. No clients came back. Uh, <clears throat> when I met with my bishop before I got a divorce, he said what was right. He said, work on your marriage. Work on your marriage. No matter what I said, he said, work on your marriage. And he never deviated from that. Agency, right? So, you know, I, I assessed, my wife and I assessed the previous 13 years, and we chose to not work on our marriage. And the moment I did that, my ecclesiastical leaders were there. And it was no longer work on your marriage, but here's how, here's how I'm going to help you. So I was never left alone. The Lord never left me alone. Even in those dark moments where I promise you there's not much of a manual for a bishop to go on and navigating somebody at, through a divorce or after a divorce. It's, it's dark territory. And it's, I think it's kind of by design because God doesn't want that for us, right? He wants us to unite and make strong, strong connections and keep those bonds. <clears throat> Agency. 
But I was shepherded through that process, not by one bishop, but by five bishops. I had moved from a little house built in the 19, early 1900s to an apartment, and I was dragging my son along. I got remarried in two years. <clears throat> You're like, wow, that's fast, Sam. No, I'm 38. <laughs> and so you, you know, you don't want to let the, the grass grow too long. But I got remarried. <clears throat> and then everything started to fall into place because I started to... I relied on the Spirit. I relied on the direction of the Lord through that. I relied on my leaders. I relied on... Um, I was trying to maintain being teachable and humble through this whole process. I was trying to eject the pride of having all this experience and talent and all these businesses that I owned and I should be further along. No, I was where I was at and I needed the Lord to help me find the next step. So I started branding companies. I started you know, being a hired gun and rebranding things. If you're, you, you remember, you know, Wahoo's on the freeway? It used to be called Boondocks. So I renamed that. Um, Fred Meyer, heard of Fred Meyer? So I redesigned the Fred Meyer website. I didn't do it by myself. I had a big team. But I was part of some really cool projects. Um, I started an apparel company. Uh, and... While I'm making shirts and hats for the Institute and everything, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I reached out to some podcasters, really big podcasters, and they gave me the opportunity to make their merch for their podcasts. And so I was making all this stuff and one of the podcasters came to me and they're like, you should, pot you should make a podcast. We'd gotten to be friends. And so I did what I do and I started another LLC and I started producing audio, which I had done a million times before in all five of my marketing agencies. So all of these roads from that dumb VHS tape that I made at Juilliard, all the way to this new digital world where everything we're doing right now, it, you, you, we have people in seats and we've got people, we have people on the moon literally listening to us. I don't know how the internet connection is there, but, but that changed my life. Because of that, I started producing podcasts true crime podcast so uh it's a little weird when your bishopric is like what do you do and i'm like i do true crime podcasts and they're like show us what your podcast is i'm like no <laughs> um but i i i keep them family friendly so I, I i'm very blessed and then full circle somehow i'm right here from all of that to being blessed with the opportunity to take all of my talents and put them in a bucket. And then the Lord says, hey, let's make a podcast. So I'm grateful for the road that I've traveled. I'm grateful for a good family. Um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you guys today. I don't have a PhD, you know, and hopefully this podcast, you know, does great things. You can't can't fail with great, great individuals with strong testimonies. But I know that the Lord knows that each one of you is just as important as anybody that's standing up here. And if you listen and you retreat for a moment into a quiet place and you let him speak to you either directly or through those that love you, and then as you go forward, you're going to fail. Just fail fast. And as you fail fast, you'll learn quick. And you'll remember this, that the Lord never draws a line for us to cross. We always do it. He's always right there. 
and we're the one drawing the line. So stay close to the Lord and let him speak to you. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.